Chapter 2 of The Spirit of the Age, or Contemporary Portraits by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 2. William Godwin. The spirit of the age was never more fully shown than in its treatment of this writer, its love of paradox and change, its dastard submission to prejudice and to the fashion of the day. Five and twenty years ago he was in the very zenith of a sultry and unwholesome popularity. He blazed as a sun in the firmament of reputation. No one was more talked of, more looked up to, more sought after, and wherever liberty, truth, justice was the theme, his name was not far off. Now he has sunk below the horizon, and enjoys the serene twilight of a doubtful immortality. Mr. Godwin, during his lifetime, has secured to himself the triumphs and mortifications of an extreme notoriety, and of a sort of posthumous fame. His bark, after being tossed in the revolutionary tempest, now raised to heaven by all the fury of popular breath, now almost dashed in pieces and buried in the quicksands of ignorance, or scorched with the lightning of momentary indignation, at length floats on the calm wave that is to bear it down the stream of time. Mr. Godwin's person is not known, he is not pointed out in the street, his conversation is not courted, his opinions are not asked, he is at the head of no cabal, he belongs to no party in the state, he has no train of admirers, no one thinks it worth his while even to traduce and vilify him. He is scarcely friend or foe. The world make a point, as Goldsmith used to say, of taking no more notice of him than if such an individual had never existed. He is to all ordinary intents and purposes dead and buried. But the author of Political Justice and of Caleb Williams can never die. His name is an abstraction in letters. His works are a standard in the history of intellect. He is thought of now like any eminent writer a hundred and fifty years ago, or just as he will be a hundred and fifty years hence. He knows this and smiles in silent mockery of himself, reposing on the monument of his fame. Sedet in aeternumque sedebit infidex thesius no work in our time gave such a blow to the philosophical mind of the country as the celebrated inquiry concerning political justice tom paine was considered for the time as a tom fool to him paley an old woman edmund burke a flashy sophist truth moral truth it was supposed had here taken up its abode and these were the oracles of thought throw aside your books of chemistry said wordsworth to a young man a student in the temple and read godwin on necessity sad necessity fatal reverse is truth then so variable is it one thing at twenty and another at forty is it a burning heat in seventeen ninety three and below zero in eighteen fourteen not so in the name of manhood and of common sense let us pause here a little Mr. Godwin indulged in extreme opinions, and carried with him all the most sanguine and fearless understandings of the time. What then? Because those opinions were overcharged, were they therefore altogether groundless? Is the very god of our idolatry all of a sudden to become an abomination and an anathema? 
could so many young men of talent of education and of principle have been hurried away by what had neither truth nor nature not one particle of honest feeling nor the least show of reason in it is the modern philosophy as it has been called at one moment a youthful bride and the next a withered belle dame like the false duessa in spencer or is the vaunted edifice of reason like his house of pride gorgeous in front and dazzling to approach while its hinder parts are ruinous decayed and old has the main prop which supported the mighty fabric been shaken and given way under the strong grasp of some samson or has it not rather been undermined by rats and vermin at one time it almost seemed that if this failed the pillared firmament was rottenness and earth's base built of stubble now scarce a shadow of it remains it is crumbled to dust nor is it even talked of what then went ye forth to see a reed shaken with the wind was it for this that our young gownsmen of the greatest expectation and promise versed in classic lore steeped in dialectics armed at all points for the foe well read well nurtured well provided for left the university and the prospect of lawn sleeves tearing asunder the shackles of the free-born spirit and the cobwebs of school divinity to throw themselves at the feet of the new gamaliel and learn wisdom from him was it for this that students at the bar acute inquisitive sceptical here only wild enthusiasts neglected for a while the paths of preferment and the law as too narrow tortuous and unseemly to bear the pure and broad light of reason was it for this that students in medicine missed their way to lectureships and the top of their profession deeming lightly of the health of the body and dreaming only of the renovation of society and the march of mind was it to this that mr southey's inscriptions pointed to this that mr coleridge's religious musings tended was it for this that mr godwin himself sat with arms folded and like cato gave his little senate laws or rather like another prospero uttered syllables that with their enchanted breath were to change the world and might almost stop the stars in their courses oh and is all forgot is this the sun of intellect blotted from the sky or has it suffered total eclipse or is it we who make the fancied gloom by looking at it through the paltry broken stained fragments of our own interests and prejudices were we fools then or are we dishonest now or was the impulse of the mind less likely to be true and sound when it arose from high thought and warm feeling than afterwards when it was warped and debased by the example the vices and the follies of the world the faults then of mr godwin's philosophy in one word was too much ambition by that sin fell the angels he conceived too nobly of his fellows the most unpardonable crime against them for there is nothing that annoys our self-love so much as being complimented on imaginary achievements to which we are wholly unequal he raised the standard of morality above the reach of humanity 
and by directing virtue to the most airy and romantic heights, made her path dangerous, solitary, and impracticable. The author of the political justice took abstract reason for the rule of conduct, and abstract good for its end. He places the human mind on an elevation from which it commands a view of the whole line of moral consequences, and requires it to conform its acts to the larger and more enlightened conscience which it has thus acquired. He absolves man from the gross and narrow ties of sense, custom, authority, private and local attachment, in order that he may devote himself to the boundless pursuit of universal benevolence. Mr. Godwin gives no quarter to the amiable weaknesses of our nature, nor does he stoop to avail himself of the supplementary aids of an imperfect virtue. Gratitude, promises, friendship, family affection give way, not that they may be merged in the opposite vices or in want of principle, but that the void may be filled up by the disinterested love of good and the dictates of inflexible justice, which is the law of laws and sovereign of sovereigns. All minor considerations yield in his system to the stern sense of duty, as they do in the ordinary and established ones to the voice of necessity. Mr. Godwin's theory, and that of more approved reasoners, differ only in this, that what are with them the exceptions, the extreme cases, he makes the everyday rule. No one denies that on great occasions, in moments of fearful excitement, or when a mighty object is at stake, the lesser and merely instrumental points of duty are to be sacrificed without remorse at the shrine of patriotism, of honor, and of conscience. But the disciple of the new school, no wonder it found so many impugners, even in its own bosom, is to be always the hero of duty. The law to which he has bound himself never swerves nor relaxes. His feeling of what is right is to be at all times wrought up to a pitch of enthusiastic self-devotion. He must become the unshrinking martyr and confessor of the public good. If it be said that this scheme is chimerical and impracticable on ordinary occasions and to the generality of mankind, well and good. But those who accuse the author of having trampled on the common feelings and prejudices of mankind in wantonness or insult, or without wishing to substitute something better, and only unattainable because it is better, in their stead accuse him wrongly. We may not be able to launch the bark of our affections on the ocean tide of humanity. We may be forced to paddle along its shores, or shelter in its creeks and rivulets, but we have no right to reproach the bold and adventurous pilot who dared us to tempt the uncertain abyss with our own want of courage or of skill or with the jealousies and impatience which deter us from undertaking or might prevent us from accomplishing the voyage the inquiry concerning political justice it was urged by its favours and defenders at the time and may still be so without either profaneness or levity is a metaphysical and logical commentary on some of the most beautiful and striking texts of scripture mr godwin is a mixture of the stoic and of the christian philosopher 
to break the force of the vulgar objections and outcry that have been raised against the modern philosophy as if it were a new and monstrous birth in morals it may be worth noticing that volumes of sermons have been written to excuse the founder of christianity for not including friendship and private affection among its golden rules but rather excluding them footnote a shaftesbury made this an objection to christianity which was answered by foster leyland and other eminent divines on the ground that christianity had a higher object in view namely general philanthropy End of footnote. moreover the answer to the question who is thy neighbour added to the divine precept thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself in the same as in the exploded pages of our author he to whom we can do most good in determining this point we were not to be influenced by any extrinsic or collateral considerations by our own predilections or the expectations of others by our obligations to them or any services they might be able to render us by the climate they were born in by the house they lived in by rank or religion or party or personal ties but by the abstract merits the pure and unbiased justice of the case the artificial helps and checks to moral conduct were set aside as spurious and unnecessary and we came at once to the grand and simple question in what manner we could best contribute to the greatest possible good this was the paramount obligation in all cases whatever from which we had no right to free ourselves upon any idle or formal pretext and of which each person was to judge for himself under the infallible authority of his own opinion and the inviolable sanction of his self-approbation there was the rub that made philosophy of so short life mr godwin's definition of morals was the same as the admired one of law reason without passion but with the unlimited scope of private opinion and in a boundless field of speculation for nothing less would satisfy the pretensions of the new school there was danger that the unreasoned novice might substitute some pragmatical conceit of his own for the rule of right reason and mistake a heartless indifference for superiority to more natural and generous feelings our ardent and dauntless reformer followed out the moral of the parable of the good samaritan into its most rigid and repulsive consequences with a pen of steel and let fall his trenchant blade on every vulnerable point of human infirmity but there is a want in his system of the mild and persuasive tone of the gospel where all is conscience and tender heart man was indeed screwed up by mood and figure into a logical machine that was to forward the public good with the utmost punctuality and effect and it might go very well on smooth ground and under favourable circumstances but would it work uphill or against the grain it was to be feared that the proud temple of reason which at a distance and in stately supposition shone like the palaces of the new jerusalem might when placed on actual ground be broken up into the sordid styles of sensuality and the petty huckster's shop of self-interest every man it was proposed so ran the tenor of the bond was to be a regulus a codrus a cato or brutus every woman a mother of the gracchi it was well said and tis a kind of good deed to say well but heroes on paper might degenerate into vagabonds in practice carinas into courtesans 
but a refined and permanent individual attachment is intended to supply the place and avoid the inconveniences of marriage but bowels of eternal constancy without church security are found to be fragile a member of the ideal and perfect commonwealth of letters lends another a hundred pounds for immediate and pressing use and when he applies for it again the borrower has still more need of it than he and retains it for his own especial which is tantamount to the public good the exchequer of pure reason like that of the state never refunds the political as well as the religious fanatic appeals from the overweening opinion and claims of others to the highest and most impartial tribunal namely his own breast two persons agree to live together in chambers on principles of pure equality and mutual assistance but when it comes to the push one of them finds that the other always insists on his fetching water from the pump in hair court and cleaning his shoes for him a modest assurance was not the least indispensable virtue in the new perfectibility code and it was hence discovered to be a scheme like other schemes where there are all prizes and no blanks for the accommodation of the enterprising and cunning at the expense of the credulous and honest this broke up the system and left no good odour behind it reason has become a sort of byword and philosophy has fallen first into a fasting then into a sadness then into a decline and last into the dissolution of which we all complain this is a worse error than the former we may be said to have lost the immoral part of ourselves and what remains is beastly the point of view from which this matter may be fairly considered is twofold and may be stated thus in the first place it by no means follows because reason is found not to be the only infallible or safe rule of conduct that it is no rule at all or that we are to discard it altogether with derision and ignominy on the contrary if not the soul it is the principal ground of action it is the guide the stay and anchor of our purest thoughts and soul of all our moral being in proportion as we strengthen and expand this principle and bring our affections and subordinate but perhaps more powerful motives of action into harmony with it it will not admit of a doubt that we advance the goal of perfection and answer the ends of our creation those ends which not only morality enjoins but which religion sanctions if with the utmost stretch of reason man cannot as some seemed inclined to suppose soar up to the god and quit the ground of human frailty yet stripped wholly of it he sinks at once into the brute if it cannot stand alone in its naked simplicity but requires other props to buttress it up or ornaments to set it off yet without it the moral structure would fall flat and dishonoured to the ground private reason is that which raises the individual above his mere animal instincts appetites and passions public reason in its gradual progress separates the savage from the civilized state without the one men would resemble wild beasts in their dens without the other they would be speedily converted into hordes of barbarians or banditti
Sir Walter Scott, in his zeal to restore the spirit of loyalty, of passive obedience and non-resistance as an acknowledgment for his having been created a baronet by a prince of the House of Brunswick, may think it a fine thing to return in imagination to the good old times when in Auvergne alone there were three hundred nobles whose most ordinary actions were robbery, rape, and murder, when the castle of each Norman baron was a stronghold from which the lordly proprietor issued to a press and plunder the neighboring districts and when the saxon peasantry were treated by their gay and gallant tyrants as a herd of loathsome swine but for our own part we beg to be excused we had rather live in the same age with the author of waverley and blackwood's magazine reason is the metre and alnager in civil intercourse by which each person's upstart and contradictory pretensions are weighed and approved or found wanting and without which it could not subsist any more than traffic or the exchange of commodities could be carried on without weights and measures it is the medium of knowledge and the polisher of manners by creating common interest and ideas or in the words of a contemporary writer reason is the queen of the moral world the soul of the universe the lamp of human life the pillar of society the foundation of law the beacon of nations the golden chain let down from heaven which links all accountable and all intelligent natures in one common system and in the vain strife between fanatic innovation and fanatic prejudice we are exhorted to dethrone this queen of the world to blot out this light of the mind to deface this fair column to break in pieces this golden chain we are to discard and throw from us with loud taunts and bitter execrations that reason which has been the lofty theme of the philosopher the poets the moralist and the divine whose name was not first named to be abused by the enthusiasts of the french revolution or to be blasphemed by the madder enthusiasts by the advocates of divine right but which is coeval with and inseparable from the nature and faculties of man is the image of his maker stamped upon him at his birth the understanding breathed into him with the breath of life and in the participation and improvement of which alone he is raised above the brute creation and his own physical nature the overstrained and ridiculous pretensions of monks and ascetics were never thought to justify a return to unbridled license of manners or the throwing aside of all decency the hypocrisy cruelty and fanaticism often attendant on peculiar professions of sanctity have not banished the name of religion from the world neither can the unreasonableness of the reason of some modern scholiasts so unreason our reason as to debar us of the benefit of this principle in future or to disfranchise us of the highest privilege of our nature in the second place if it is admitted that reason alone is not the sole and self-sufficient ground of morals it is to mr godwin that we are indebted for having settled the point no one denied or distrusted this principle before his time as the absolute judge and interpreter in all questions of difficulty and if this is no longer the case it is because he has taken the principle and followed it into its remotest consequences with more keenness of eye and steadiness of of hand than any other expounder of ethics 
his grand work is at least an experimentum crocus to show the weak sides and imperfections of human reason as the sole law of human action by overshooting the mark or by flying an eagle flight forth and right on he has pointed out the limit or line of separation between what is practicable and what is barely conceivable by imposing impossible tasks on the naked strength of the will he has discovered how far it is or is not in our power to dispense with the illusion of sense to resist the calls of affection to emancipate ourselves from the force of habit and thus though he has not said it himself has enabled others to say to the towering aspirations after good and to the overbearing pride of human intellect thus far shalt thou come and no farther captain perry would be thought to have rendered a service to navigation and his country no less by proving that there is no northwest passage than if he had ascertained that there is one so mr godwin has rendered an essential service to moral science by attempting in vain to pass the arctic circle and frozen regions where the understanding is no longer warmed by the affections nor fanned by the breeze of fancy this is the effect of all bold original and powerful thinking that it either discovers the truth or detects where it lies and the only crime with which mr godwin can be charged as a political and moral reasoner is that he has displayed a more ardent spirit and a more independent activity of thought than others in establishing the fallacy if fallacy it be of an old popular prejudice that the just and true were one by championing it to the utrance and in the final result placing the gothic structure of human virtue on an humbler but a wider and safer foundation than it had hitherto occupied in the volumes and systems of the learned mr godwin is an inventor in the regions of romance as well as a skilful and hardy explorer of those of moral truth caleb williams and st leon are two of the most splendid and impressive works of the imagination that have appeared in our times it is not merely that these novels are very well for a philosopher to have produced they are admirable and complete in themselves and would not lead you to suppose that the author who is so entirely at home in human character and dramatic situation had ever dabbled in logic or metaphysics the first of these particularly is a masterpiece both as to invention and execution the romantic and chivalrous principle of the love of personal fame is embodied in the finest possible manner in the character of falkland footnote b mr fuseli used to object to this striking delineation a want of historical correctness inasmuch as the animating principle of the true chivalrous character was the sense of honour not the mere regard to or saving of appearances this we think must be a hypercriticism from all we remember of books of chivalry and heroes of romance End of footnote as in caleb williams who is not the first but the second character in the piece we see the very demon of curiosity personified perhaps the art with which these two characters are contrived to relieve and set off each other has never been surpassed in any work of fiction with the exception of the immortal satire of cervantes 
the restless and inquisitive spirit of Caleb Williams in search and in possession of his patron's fatal secret haunts the latter like a second conscience, plants stings in his tortured mind, fans the flame of his jealous ambition, struggling with agonized remorse, and the hapless but noble-minded Falkland at length falls a martyr to the persecution of that morbid and overpowering interest of which his mingled virtues and vices have rendered him the object we conceive no one ever began caleb williams that did not read it through no one that ever read it could possibly forget it or speak of it after any length of time but with an impression as if the events and feelings had been personal to himself this is the case also with the story of saint leon which with less dramatic interest and intensity of purpose is set off by a more gorgeous and flowing eloquence and by a crown of preternatural imagery that waves over it like a palm tree it is the beauty and the charm of mr godwin's descriptions that the reader identifies himself with the author and the secret of this is that the author has identified himself with his personages indeed he has created them they are the proper issue of his brain lawfully begot not foundlings nor the bastards of his art he is not an indifferent callous spectator of the scenes which he himself portrays but without seeming to feel them there is no work of patchwork and plagiarism the beggarly copiousness of borrowed wealth no tracery work from worm-eaten manuscripts from forgotten chronicles nor piecing out of vague traditions with fragments and snatches of old ballads so that the result resembles a gaudy staring transparency in which you cannot distinguish the daubing of the painter from the light that shines through the flimsy colours and gives them brilliancy here all is clearly made out with strokes of a pencil by fair not by factitious means our author takes a given subject from nature or from books and then fills it up with the ardent workings of his own mind with the teeming and audible pulses of his own heart the effect is entire and satisfactory in proportion the work so to speak and the author are one we are not puzzled to decide upon their respective pretensions in reading mr godwin's novels we know what share of merit the author has in them in reading the scotch novels we are perpetually embarrassed in asking ourselves this question and perhaps it is not altogether a false modesty that prevents the editor from putting his name in the title page he is for anything we know to the contrary only a more voluminous sort of alan adale at least we may claim this advantage for the english author that the chains with which he rivets our attention are forged out of his own thoughts link by link blow for blow with glowing enthusiasm we see the genuine ore melted in the furnace of fervid feeling and moulded into stately and ideal forms and this is so far better than peeping into an old iron shop or pilfering from a dealer in marine stores there is one drawback however attending this mode of proceeding which attaches generally indeed to all originality of composition namely that it has a tendency to a certain degree of monotony he who draws upon his own resources easily comes to an end of his wealth 
Mr. Godwin, in all his writings, dwells upon one idea or exclusive view of a subject, aggrandizes a sentiment, exaggerates a character, or pushes an argument to extremes, and makes up by the force of style and continuity of feeling for what he wants in variety of incident or ease of manner this necessary defect is observable in his best works and is still more so in fleetwood and mandeville the one of which compared with his more admired performances is mawkish and the other morbid mr godwin is also an essayist an historian in short what is he not that belongs to the character of an indefatigable and accomplished author his life of chaucer would have given celebrity to any man of letters possessed of three thousand a year with leisure to write quartos as the legal acuteness displayed in his remarks on judge eyre's charges to the jury would have raised any briefless barrister to the height of his profession this temporary effusion did more it gave a turn to the trials for high treason in the year seventeen ninety four and possibly saved the lives of twelve innocent individuals marked out as political victims to the moloch of legitimacy which then skulked behind a british throne and had not yet dared to stalk forth as it has done since from its lurking place in the face of day to brave the opinion of the world if it had then glutted its maw with its intended prey the sharpness of mr godwin's pen cut the legal cord with which it was attempted to bind them it might have done so sooner and with more lasting effect the world do not know and we are not sure but the intelligence may startle mr godwin himself that he is the author of a volume of sermons and of a life of chatham footnote c we had forgotten the tragedies of antonio and ferdinand peace be with their manes end of footnote mr fawcett an old friend and fellow-student of our author and who always spoke of his writings with admiration tinctured with wonder used to mention a circumstance with respect to the last-mentioned work which may throw some light on the history and progress of mr godwin's mind he was anxious to make his biographical account as complete as he could and applied for this purpose to many of his acquaintance to furnish him with anecdotes or to suggest criticisms amongst others mr fawcett repeated to him what he thought a striking passage in a speech on general warrants delivered by mr chatham at which he mr fawcett had been present every man's house said this emphatic thinker and speaker has been called his castle and why is it called his castle is it because it is defended by a wall because it is surrounded with a moat no it may be nothing more than a straw-built shed it may be open to all the elements the wind may enter in the rain may enter in but the king cannot enter in his friend thought that the point was here palpable enough but when he came to read the printed volume he found it thus transposed every man's house is his castle and why is it called so is it because it is defended by a wall because it is surrounded with a moat no it may be nothing more than a straw-built shed it may be exposed to all the elements the rain may enter into it all the winds of heaven may whistle round it but the king cannot etc 
This was what Fawcett called a defect of natural imagination. He at the same time admitted that Mr. Godwin had improved his native sterility in this respect, or toned for it by incessant activity of mind and by accumulated stores of thought and powers of language. In fact, his forte is not the spontaneous, but the voluntary exercise of talent. He fixes his ambition on a high point of excellence and spares no pains or time in attaining it. He has less of the appearance of a man of genius than any one who has given such decided and ample proofs of it. He is ready only on reflection, dangerous only at the rebound. He gathers himself up and strains every nerve and faculty with deliberate aim to some heroic and dazzling achievement of intellect, but he must make a career before he flings himself armed upon the enemy, or he is sure to be unhorsed, or he resembles an eight-day clock that must be wound up long before it can strike. Therefore his powers of conversation are but limited. He has neither acuteness of remark nor flow of language, both of which might be expected from his writings, as these are no less distinguished by a sustained and impassioned tone of declamation than by novelty of opinion or brilliant tracts of invention. In company, Horn Took used to make a mere child of him, or of any man. Mr. Godwin liked this treatment, and indeed it is his foible to fawn on those who use him cavalierly, and to be cavalier to those who express an undue or unqualified admiration of him. Footnote D. To be sure, it was redeemed by a high respect, and by some magnificent compliments. Once in particular at his own table, after a good deal of badinage and cross-questioning about his being the author of the reply to Judge Eyre's charge, on Mr. Godwin's acknowledging that he was, Mr. Tuck said, Come here, then, and when his guest went round to his chair, he took his hand and pressed it to his lips, saying, I can do no less for the hand that saved my life. End of footnote. He looks up with unfeigned respect to acknowledged reputation, but then it must be very well ascertained before he admits it, and has a favorite hypothesis that understanding and virtue are the same thing. Mr. Godwin possesses a high degree of philosophical candor, and studiously paid the homage of his pen and person to Mr. Malthus, Sir James Mackintosh, and Dr. Parr, for their unsparing attacks on him, but woe to any poor devil who had the hardihood to defend him against them. In private, the author of Political Justice at one time reminded those who knew him of the metaphysician engrafted on the dissenting minister. There was a dictatorial, captious, quibbling pettiness of manner. He lost this with the first blush and awkwardness of popularity, which surprised him in the retirement of his study, and he has since, with the wear and tear of society, from being too pragmatical, become somewhat too careless. He is at present as easy as an old glove. Perhaps there is a little attention to effect in this, and he wishes to appear a foil to himself. His best moments are with an intimate acquaintance or two, when he gossips in a fine vein about old authors, Clarendon's history of rebellion, or Burnett's history of his own times, and you perceive by your host's talk, as by the taste of seasoned wine, that he has a cellarage in his understanding. Mr. Godwin also has a correct, 
acquired taste in poetry and the drama he relishes don and ben jonson and recites a passage from either with an agreeable mixture of pedantry and bonhomie he is not one of those who do not grow wiser with opportunity and reflection he changes his opinions and changes them for the better the alteration of his taste in poetry from an exclusive admiration of the age of queen anne to an almost equally exclusive one of that of elizabeth is we suspect owing to mr coleridge who some twenty years ago threw a great stone into the standing pool of criticism which splashed some persons with the mud but which gave a motion to the surface and a reverberation to the neighbouring echoes which has not since subsided in common company mr godwin either goes to sleep himself or sets others to sleep he is at present engaged in a history of the commonwealth of england esto perpetua in size mr godwin is below the common stature nor is this deportment graceful or animated his face is however fine with an expression of placid temper and recondite thought he is not unlike the common portraits of locke there is a very admirable likeness of him by mr northcote which with a more heroic and dignified air only does justice to the profound sagacity and benevolent aspirations of our author's mind mr godwin has kept the best company of his time but he has survived most of the celebrated persons with whom he lived in habits of intimacy he speaks of them with enthusiasm and with discrimination and sometimes dwells with peculiar delight on a day passed at john kemble's in company with mr sheridan mr curran mrs wollstonecraft and mrs inchbald when the conversation took a most animated turn and the subject was of love of all these our author is the only one remaining frail tenure on which human life and genius are lent us for a while to improve or to enjoy End of chapter 2